History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. Today, we are going to continue our exploration of gender and sexuality in Islamic history by diving into the figure we've mentioned a few times, the Muhanathun. We've mentioned them particularly when discussing same-sex desire and in our intro episode, but they are a topic worthy of discussion all their own. Now, before we get started, if you are enjoying these episodes, don't hesitate to leave some good reviews on the podcast app. It always helps the algorithm and introduces new people to head on history. With that shameless self-promotion out of the way, let us dive in. Much of the contemporary discourse around gender is shaped by the idea that gender and sexual sexuality really kind of fall into a binary, particularly with recent debates. But there has been a movement to push back on it probably in the past 50 years or so. Many times people who insist on a simple binary will cite science and history, ironically not realizing or, you know, perhaps not caring that it's actually the reverse. For much of the world's history, many, if not most, cultures imagine gender in a multiplicity of expressions or on a spectrum. The same is true for Islamic history. Both sexuality, I should say, and all sexuality, sex, and gender are viewed as a spectrum, as we talked about in our same-sex desire. There was a sort of understanding that people were kind of fluid in their desire, that heteronormativity was not the assumed position, heterosexuality was not the assumed position, that we often project heteronormativity backwards onto the sources, that desire was in many ways ungendered and could change over time, different time periods, at different emphasis, and even in a person's life, a person can, you know, like one thing, one, you know, have one inclination at one point and a different at a different point. That there was no contradiction in that. And in fact, we could even make the case that bisexuality or pansexuality was the norm. Similarly with uh, sex and gender, we will find that there is a understanding of diversity, flexibility, and fluidity that we often don't hear about in the contemporary discourse. Much of this history is made kind of subsumed and made invisible, but in actuality, when you look at the sources, it's quite complicated. Like other societies, Islamic ones made space for what they deemed as a quote-unquote third sex, which was referred to as the Mukhanathun and variations thereof. Now, the Mukhanathun seemed to have been part of Arabian society at the time of Muhammad, probably part of the fabric of, of the world he was born in, and were eventually enfolded into the religion and subsequent Muslim societies. The Quran hints to this in the following verse. This is from Quran Surah 24, verse 31. And tell the believing women to guard their private parts and not expose their adornment except that which appears thereof, and to wrap a portion of their covers over their chest, and not expose their adornment, except to their husbands, their fathers, their father, their husbands' fathers, their sons, their husbands' sons, their brothers, their brothers' sons, their sisters' sons, their women, those which their right hand possesses, servants, 
those male attendings having no physical desire, or children who are not yet aware of private aspects of women. Now, while the overt interpretation of this verse tends to focus on modesty question, in actuality, the verse is about the demarcation between private and public. This is something that I've mentioned before, but Islamic society has a strong sense of the separation between the two. This separation is actually one of the reasons why Islamic societies tended to actually be tolerant and open to diversity of sexuality, for as religious scholars repeatedly point out in the text, the state and society has no say in the private lives of citizens unless there is some type of active harm being done or arbitration is sought after. This, of course, will be a major shift that we will see in the modern era, but we'll talk about those changes in actual in an actual future episode. But what I do want to point out here, and what's significant, is one, it's not to say that modesty is not important. It certainly is important. We find that uh, modesty is uh, prescribed for both men and women, that everybody is supposed to be modest, that it's considered a good virtue. But the key to this virtue is the understanding that there's a separation between your public life and your private life, that how you dress and act in private is different from how you dress and act in public. This is kind of a key cornerstone. And this makes sense for sort of desert-dwelling people, if you think about the desert and the sort of harsh environment of the world, then outer covers are crucial, crucial to protect you from the withering storm, from the cruel winds, but also from a society that can be quite harsh in public as well. The idea is if the, the weather is harsh, so too are people, right? People are gossip and people invade your private sphere. So it's about creating a sanctuary. And it's interesting that paradise is often discussed in the Quran as a type of gardened sanctuary, a place where you can recline and be at ease. And to many extents and many interpretations, the home is meant to be like that, which is why sex and pleasure and all these things are great right in the house. It's your place of refuge. It's the place where you can enjoy them. But in the public, that's the collective space, the space that everyone agrees upon. And so, yeah, modesty is important, but this verse very crucially is talking about the separation of public and private. Now, returning to this verse, what's so crucial about this separation of public of, of private is that we have a list of people who are allowed into the inner circle or private sphere. This is, you know, husbands and fathers and your husband's father and so on and so forth. But they also include those male attendants who have no physical desire. What, while some later people would interpret this to mean eunuchs or the elderly, it actually is a reference to the muhanathun, a third gender category associated with no sexual desire for women. So there is this third category. There are men, and there are women, and then there is this other group known as the muhanathun, who have no sexual desire towards women, and so as a result, could be in the private spaces of women. Further evidence of this link is found in the Hadith, where we have a reference to Hit, the servant of Umm Salama. What is significant is that Hit is in the private quarters of Muhammad's wife, Umm Salama. From this we can glean that the Muhanathun were intermediaries operating in liminal spaces. A report from Aisha recorded that the, this is a report that's actually found in the Hadith collection of Muslim. It indicates that the Muhanathun were considered, quote-unquote, without desire, 
therefore linking them to that Quranic verse. So who's the Quranic verse referring to? The Mukhanathon. How do we know? The Hadith tells us so. So here you have these figures that could traverse the public space, the collective space, into the private space and hang out with women. Now I should note that Hit does eventually get in trouble. Specifically, they were expelled from the private quarters, but they remain part of the community. Now this was not because Hit was a Mukhanathun. Indeed, they seem to have been part of Muhammad's family for some time without any real issue. The reason was that Hit was caught gossiping about the body of another woman with a man specifically mocking her, which was crossing boundaries, or indicated that Hit had some type of notion of desire, was not without desire themselves. By setting up this other man, by talking to this other man about another woman's body, Hit had crossed boundaries and so therefore was banished from the private sphere. On the whole, the entire corpus of Muhammad's life only points to two Muhannathun being banished, while we have names of literal dozens. This should indicate quite clearly that Muhammad and the early prophetic tradition takes no aggressive stand on the Muhannathun and simply accepts them as part of the fabric of society. They're simply taken for granted. They're part of society. There's no anxiety about them. There's no prescription. There's no, like, you have to do something. Nope. No addressing this particular factor. They simply accept it. From the Kitab al-Aghani, we have further details of the lives of the Muhannathun from Muhammad's time. They were described as wearing women's clothing, bangles on their ankles and wrist, and dyeing their hands and feet with henna. They presented as female. They had sort of languid female gestures. It was, in fact, the word mukhanathun, which is often translated as effeminate, inaccurately so, actually refers to languid. It refers to a sort of way that you hold your body, sort of sensual way that you hold your body. So the mukhanathun presented with female, what was believed to be female mannerisms. Now, in society, they were usually musicians, entertainers, and or matchmakers because of their ability to traverse these kind of public and private spaces. We have the names and lives of several. Now, this is remarkable in of itself. The archives are bloody places. It's the boneyard of history, if you will, where things are buried. The lives of countless are silenced, and as such, it's quite difficult to recover the lives and voices of those people that are on the margins of society. This is the difficulty of doing any type of history. You're often working with bone fragments and trying to kind of reconstruct from there. That we have this information about the Mohanathun is important. It tells us that they were likely an integral and accepted part of Islamic society for some time. For example, there was Tuwais and Al-Dalal, who I've talked about last week. Um, and as far as we can tell, the Muhannathun faced no persecution or religiously sanctioned punishment of any type. They were simply taken for granted as part of that society. Now, I should note here that there is a hadith where Muhammad is reputed to have cursed those people who, quote-unquote, imitate women. But this was in a reference to a specific type of mockery of women, that is, affecting the mannerisms of women in order to mock them, rather than addressing the Mahanathun, whose different was treated as innate. We know this because it's mentioned in the hadith, 
who are the Machanatham? Oh, they're born this way, is the actual phrase. So there's a distinction here between the two. Uh, this report, this hadith where he curses the people who imitate women is in Malak bin Anas. This is just to note that there is some language about people who mock women, who take on the affected mannerisms of women. But it's a minor hadith, and it's not seemed to have been part of the major discourse. The Machanathan, on the other hand, are treated as entirely a sort of separate category. The only time we actually have any record of the Muhannathan facing any real persecution will actually come after Muhammad with the Umayyad dynasty. Khalif Suleiman will demand the castration of some of the Muhannathan and the execution of several other ones. But again, this isn't because of who they were, but because they piss him off. Apparently, he was trying to get Randy with one of his lovers, but she was distracted by the alluring music of the Muhannathan, and so the Khalif deemed their art corrupting and issued a ruling against them. So it's specifically for their corrupting music, not because of who they were. And it's important to note that this was the exception, not the norm. On the whole, the Mahanathan seem to have been an accepted part of all major Islamic societies. The connection to music is actually the consistent theme for which the Mahanathan are known for. They are known as singers and dancers and musicians. The earliest reference outside of Hit in the Hadith is to a figure named Tuais, means little peacock, or a sort of cute way of saying peacock, who was born either right before the death of Muhammad or on the death of Muhammad. So again, roughly contemporaneous to the early companions. Tuais was, according to Kitab al-Aghani, the first to compose the lighter styles of music known as the Hajaz. This usually was accompanied with some form of tambourine. Now, Tuais lived to the grand old age of 80. No issue. Had a full, rich life amongst the companions of Muhammad. In fact, one time when Yahya ibn al-Hakam was appointed the governor of Medina, Tuais would dance and sing for him. The governor was so pleased that he sat Tuais next to him and asked the singer if they were Muslim. And Tuais responded by saying the Shahada, the Declaration of Faith in, in Islam, indicating that Tuais was a practicing Muslim. And what did the governor do? The governor praised Tuais's performance and accepted Tuais as part of the society. No issue there. Now, Rowison notes, phenomenal work, her article, the article on um, feminists in, in early Medina, notes that there are variations of this particular tale, but they all seem to indicate the same thing. The Tuais was part of Muslim society without much issue. There was no anxiety about Tuais. In fact, Tuais seems to have been an important and integral figure of most parties. <laughs> you didn't have a party in Medina if you didn't invite Tuais to perform. Now, Tuais's student was actually Al-Dalal, who I've mentioned in the past episode, so there's a connection between these two individuals. But both of their lives are very important for understanding the standing of the Muhannathan in early Muslim societies, but also the complex ways in which gender intersects with sexuality. So it's not just that they lived these lives, but how they lived these lives tells us a great deal. Al-Dalal, for example, was openly gay, or at least what we'd consider bisexual today. We talked about this in the previous episode. But Tuais was married to a woman. Okay, now this raises some complicated notions. Firstly, some considered the Muhannathan as feminine men, while others treated them as a completely separate gender entirely, a third category. Some Muhannathun were gay and so overlapped with same-sex desire, while others married women and showed no inclination towards men. 
That is to say, not all gay individuals were Mukhanathun. We talked about Abu Nawas, for example. And not all Mukhanathun were associated with sexuality. Twice, for example. Others were, like Al-Dalal. All of this is to say that it is complicated, and it seems that that complexity was on the whole accepted in Islamic societies. Now, the Umayyads were also tolerant of the Mokhanathum, though there were some restrictions around music. Indeed, the sort of harshest actions are usually taken uh, when the Mokhanathum are said to cause trouble with music. For whatever reason, the Umayyads had like weird, a weird relationship to music. Some of them were okay with it, and some of them were not. They were very anxious around that. But never, in any instance, were any of them punished or persecuted or restricted based off how they dressed or anything in regards to gender. So the only reason that the Mohanathan ever faced persecution, and there were exceptions, not a major policy among the Umayyads, just little periods of them. And where these periods come from is when the Mohanathan overlap with music. So there'd be some type of restriction against music, and then therefore the Mohanathan would be part of that sort of targeting. None of this is, of course, to dismiss the, the horrors that they face, though. Suleiman's treatment of, of the Mohanathum by castrating them or ex- excommunicating them, not excommunicating them, I mean, them, executing them. For whatever reason, my past life as a Catholic came through right there. But executing them, that's a horrible, horrible, you know, unforgivable act of, of state-sanctioned violence uh, towards lots of people. It looks like at least a dozen people were caught up in this. But it's also important to note that these periods of horrific violence are not representative of the larger history, that the larger trend is towards tolerance and acceptance. And that's important to note as well. Now, by the time of the Abbasids in the 9th century, the Mukhanathun are part of the official court of the Khalif. They are considered al-Nadim, that is, the boon companions, which means they sit at the table of the khalif during meals as a close confidant. That is an indication of just how close they were to the private sphere of the khalif. Sitting as a, at the khalif of the, you know, at the right hand of the khalif or at their dinner table or at their food table is a big deal. It tells us that the Mohanathun were highly praised uh, in, in the court of the Abbasids. They were said to be, according to records, skilled in learned conversation, wit, poetry, music, and astrology. Some of them were linked to comedy and performance. The most famous of them was uh, one known as Abada, who served several khalifs over 40 years, usually as a sort of type of burlesque dancer and comedic entertainer. By this time, the Mohanathun were more explicitly associated with gay desire. So we should note that there is a sort of transformation. Early on, the Mohanathun are more ambiguous. They have a sort of, they exist as a third category of gender, if you will, between men and women by the time, but they're not explicitly associated with same-sex desire. Some are, some aren't. By the time of the Abbasids, there is a continuation of the idea that they're connected with entertainment, but now they have a much clearer connection with same-sex desire. Uh, in fact, Abada was famously asked by the Khalif if all the Mahanathun preferred men, and Abada replied that the two go together like a religious scholar and a cap. There's actually a more uh, body version of this where the Khalif asks if all the Mohanathun were passive partners. He quoted the quote as passive partners in same-sex uh, sex. And he says, yes, we, we are, we go together like a religious scholar in a cap, which you can see the imagery 
is meant to be quite evocative and, and quite risque. But that also tells you just how comfortable they were speaking to the Khalif. That said, I should note that some of the literature at this time period do take a, a slightly negative approach to the Mohanathun. The Mohanathun become a sort of point of mockery by some poets, even as they're elevated by the Khalif. So there's some mockery that happens here, but on the whole, they're still considered an important part of the Khaliful court there. Now, Islamic philosophers and medical practitioners did medicalize the Muhannathun during this time period, recognizing them as part of the spectrum of gender and sex. They did this by drawing heavily on Hellenistic models of Galens to help explain the diversity of sex and gender. The child's sex was determined by the climate, if you will, of the uterus. Hot and dry produced men, and wet and cold produced women. That The uterus's climate, if it was hot and dry or wet and cold, would produce men and women, respectively. This theory produces a rather dynamic understanding of gender and sex, which is fluid rather than static. This even allows for some conception of transition. A woman who has too much hot and dry humor in her may transition to a man, and a man who has too much cold and wet humor may become a woman. This is quite fascinating. You could see how that dynamism is played by this idea that well, everyone's a sort of mix of these fluids. In this instance, even the literal climate or food had an impact on a person's sex and gender, if you were in a hot climate or a cold climate and so on and so forth. For Ibn Sina, he draws in an even older Greek model, that is, of gender and sexuality, that is shaped by the balance between the semen of the father and the semen of the mother, and whichever one was dominant. That everyone was a product of these two fluids, the semen of the father and the semen of the mother, and the balance or tipping over that balance would determine the sex of the child or if the child was ambiguous in their sexual characteristics. Interestingly, Ibn Sina even hints a possibility of gender-reaffirming surgery as a possibility. This obviously is a very understudied part of history, and more work needs to be done. But in her phenomenal work on intersex bodies, Indira Falk Gezenek mentions that Abul al-Qasim, who is an Andalusian doctor in the 11th century, seems to have prescribed and carried out gender-reaffirming surgery, generally in the cases of alleviating some form of suffering or in order to allow um, sexual pleasure. So there was this idea that somehow uh, their sexual characteristics were making it difficult for that individual to enjoy sex. And so there was a, a language about alleviating suffering. This is quite fascinating that the language, the medical language, is all about, it has a sort of humanistic bent to it. There's an acceptance of these individuals from a humanistic standpoint of, of not causing harm, of alleviating suffering. That So, for example, Ibn Sina might medicalize the Muhanathun by saying, okay, there clearly something is going on here that may not be the norm of man and woman, but... Because they are part, they because they exist, because they're part of nature, they should be accepted into society, and if they require surgery, we should help them. But we sh- there shouldn't be any sort of. There's no notion of them being 
um, abhorrent or an abomination or a, or a mistake of nature. None of that language exists in these medical textbooks. They have a very humanistic spirit. A very it's quite fascinating and unique when you read it. You read Ibn Sina, and he, he really is inclined towards this idea of alleviating some form of suffering. And it's from this idea that they simply accept, okay, that there is a third category, that we get these three recognizable understandings of sex, that is, men, then a third category, which includes non-binary people, trans people, intersex people, and then a category of women. Medically and socially, there was no issue, but we should note that there was some legal anxiety here, particularly around the khuntha, or the intersex individual. So not necessarily the muhanathun, but specifically the intersex. So now we're moving away from presenting and looking a little bit more at uh, biology, but even then we'll note that, that gender performance plays a big role here. So there's an understanding that even sex is tied to some type of social understanding. For example, um, there was a, a, a idea that there was no medical issue with a person who was a khuntha that was intersex. There was no social issue with them that they could be part of society, but there was some legal anxiety specifically around what their obligations were. Obligations are tied legally towards in in you know, towards sex, so there were legal obligations that men had and legal obligations that women had, and so some of that anxiety is about well, how do we deal with this obligation? How do we um, prescribe this obligation? How do we say okay, this is your obligation? No, you're free from this obligation, and so some legal scholars came up with the idea of a urine test known as hukum al mabal to determine what was called legal sex but not medical sex. This issue is a social one, that is to say, not a matter of sin or a matter of assigning blame or, or punishment or anything like that. It's just a matter of dealing with social obligations. We have discourses around marriage in particular and inheritance and whatnot. The idea being that you wanted to determine the masculinity of the khuntha, how masculine were they? Because if they were masculine, then they needed to protect their wife. Men were charged with protection of their wives legally. It was one of their legal obligations to protect their wives. And so we find, for example, Al-Sarakhshi talking in the 11th century about marriage. Now that tells us something. That means that the Khunta intersex individuals did get married. That means that the Muhanathun also got married. That there was some legal anxiety around determining masculinity and femininity on a scale here. But this was also a, a you know, sort of one position. It was not, you know, accepted by all scholars. Significant in this discourse about marriage, one, that they are able to get married, two, that they, that there was some sort of uh, language about obligations but no real anxiety about abomination. That's what's key here. What is significant and what is missing is that there's no anxiety or condemnation of same-sex relationships. In Europe at this exact same time, the discourse around intersex individuals was replete with a deep, deep concern about what the real gender of the person was in case you had sex with them. Oh no, what if you accidentally slept with someone who claimed to have been intersex, but they were actually of the same sex, they had the same sexual characteristics as you did? That concern is missing entirely in these Muslim jurists. It simply comes down to a matter of what the legal obligations were. They were not interested in establishing sex as a real medical category. 
They were simply interested in establishing legal obligations while acknowledging that individuals were of ambiguous sex and actuality. In fact, they used the word mushkil, which means difficult to determine. And so they simply accept ambiguity. There's a whole category of just saying, okay, we just don't know. Not gonna, we're not going to worry about this. It's just accept that this is a, a third category that exists between men and, and, and women. The only real question was the question of, okay, well, are they masculine? Are they feminine? Is that, do they have obligations? Do they not have obligations? And so that's where that, this urine test came from. But the urine test was a minor one. We have other examples, for example, of Al-Margani. Margani says no urine test should be taken. He rejects it completely. Marganani says is that whatever they declare, that's what that person was because sex is a private matter and it's their business. So again, you have this nanya business <laughs> mentality in Islamic law. Don't meddle in people's private affairs. And so they said whatever they declared, if they declare that they're responsible for somebody's protection, then they're responsible for somebody's protection. If they say they're not responsible for somebody's protection, then they're not. What this basically breaks down to is that there was an acceptance of at least three categories of sex. But we could argue that there's actually five in total, um, which is recorded as masculine men, feminine men, intermediary figures like the Khuntha, the Mohanathan, and then masculine women and feminine women. That they accepted all of these five categories as natural expressions and that there would be shifts. That, for example, feminine men may become masculine men, or they may become a third category, they may become they may be khuntha, they're intersex, or they may be muhanathun presenting as female. All of this was considered acceptable in the discourse. The law simply tries to deal with obligations here. This is a very dynamic and flexible understanding of gender. And it allows for the incorporation of indigenous ideas of sex and gender as well. So as Islam spreads to places like Indonesia, which has a multiplicity of genders, that is simply incorporated without any real tension. There's no attempt to impose a binary on Indonesia, which is why Indonesia still has five genders. Similarly, in the case of South Asia, which has a third sex category known as the Hijra or the Qanar, Islam will spread into South Asia, which becomes Pakistan and India today, and accept that third category. This third category stems from antiquity, even before the coming of Islam. And so because of this dynamic understanding of gender, that, okay, there are these other categories that exist, then when they go to these places with their own indigenous understanding, Islam will simply incorporate it without attempting to change it or impose some type of binary. Indeed, the binary will not exist until the 18th or 19th century, where we will start to see a shift. And we'll talk about that shift in a future uh, episode. But this is significant because even today, the hijra exists, right? The hijra just recently, a couple years ago, Pakistani religious scholars indicated the hijras can get married. So there's all sorts of rulings around this, even in Iran, right? The idea of transgender individuals getting sex reaffirming surgery. Now, in the case of Iran, this is specifically to to, to kind of avoid same-sex relationships. It's to impose heterosexual relationships upon them. So there's an underlying current of homophobia or anti-gay sentiment in their decision, but that is also to note that they do allow for transgender individuals in Iran. You would think that Iran, with its really strict religious you know, conservatism, 
but actually that dynamic understanding of gender exists even then. That it's only in places where we will see a colonial masculinity emerge that this will start to change. And we'll talk about this again in a in a future episode. We will talk we'll take all of this and go, okay, this is great. This was the medieval Islam, but what happens in the modern era? Do these ideas still continue or or are they ch- you know challenge? Now, I should know, what about trans men or female-to-male individuals? We do have some evidence of this as well, but the records are a bit scant, and most fell under the category of what medieval Islamic scholars would call cross-dressing. But I'll cover that in the next episode while making space by saying that even though they say they use the term cross-dressing, there may be space here for trans men as well. None of this, of course, is to point a rosy picture. The pre-modern Islamic pasts had their own social hierarchies, their own patriarchies, their own regimes of exclusion, right? They all existed there. But what this all points to is a far more complicated understanding of gender and sex than a binary one. From early Islamic history to the Muslim societies which developed later, we see the existence of trans, non-binary, and intersex individuals who lived rich and full lives. And with that, we're going to end this episode here. Thank you all for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, history nerds. (laughs) 